Welcome to Embargoed, intelligent talk about sanctions, export controls, and all things international trade for trade nerds and normal human beings alike. I'm one of your hosts, Tim O'Toole, and with me is my friend, colleague, and guest co-host for today, Nea van der Aa of the Van Doren Law Firm in Amsterdam, the Netherlands. Nea, welcome. Thank you, Tim. Great to be here. Good. Good to have you. And uh, before we get started, um, let me talk about another one of my uh, friends, colleagues, and, and co-hosts, or former co-hosts, uh, Brian Fleming. Um, as many of you know, you've, you've watched the podcast or you've listened to the podcast, and Brian was the, the founder and co-host with me. Um, and unfortunately, you know, Brian has moved on and, and will not be back, but we, we wish him the best. And in fact, I'll be recording a, a webinar tomorrow with Brian. Um, today is October 8th when we are recording this, but and, and tomorrow the webinar will come out. Um, so probably we will not be uh, have, have not not be downloaded yet before the the webinar takes place. But we just wanted to wish Brian the best as we we kind of move on and 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 um, kind of move the podcast to a, a more international direction. So um, best of luck to Brian. So Naya, again, thanks for being here. Um, today, we're going to try and talk about uh, EU sanctions against Russia, uh, at mostly focus on EU sanctions. We'll talk a little bit at the end of the podcast about some of the, the more recent US sanctions developments. But um, why don't we get started by just having you tell us a little bit about EU sanctions enforcement generally before we start talking about Russia, because I think that will help give our guests a, a good background in kind of where EU sanctions kind of enforcement started as of February 2022, and then we can talk more about what happened in Russia. Yeah, that's that that's a good thing. And I think um, what's what's good to uh, remind everyone listening is that um, there's a very significant difference between the way that sanctions in the EU are structured, both legally and in practice, from the way that sanctions are structured structured in the US. So to a very significant extent, the US has a sort of top-down mechanism, and Tim can speak, speak more to that, uh, where it's, it's, it's the president, it's Congress, it's, it's OFAC that sort of speaks to a certain extent with, with, with one voice, or at least they are aligned on, on probably many, many uh, uh, interpretive issues. The EU is sort of a different beast, where already on the legislation level, um, you're dealing with the requirement that all different member states need to agree before sanctions uh, are imposed. That means that before sanctions are actually uh, um, imposed, they go through a, a really elaborate diplomatic process of negotiations uh, and, and to a certain extent bartering uh, behind the scenes. Um, and as probably most uh, listeners will know, Right now, for instance, with Russia, there are very different views uh, among different member states as to how they view Russia, how they view the appropriate ap approach for the European Union as a whole. And you have outliers. Um, uh, Poland, for instance, right now is a, a very strong opposer of Russia, uh, uh, very much in favor of very strong and decisive actions. Uh, uh, Hungary is more on the other side of the spectrum. And what you need before sanctions can be imposed is consensus. Uh, and, and so consensus does not always breed uh, clarity uh, in, in rules. Uh, and when those rules are, um, uh, are made, are, are published, it's up to the different member states to actually enforce them. 
And to a certain extent, that leaves them room for interpretation uh, and also leaves them room for, let's call it activity. Um, uh, some member states are way more active than others in uh, both interpreting the sanctions broadly or narrowly, and then actually pursuing uh, sanctions violations, uh, investigating those actively, um, uh, or not doing so at all. And well, let me let me land, yeah. Let me stop you there. So, so if I'm understanding correctly, just historically and and even now, EU sanctions are basically a legislative process where you have to come together with 30 different member states and essentially everyone agree and pass what look, sounds to me like almost congressional legislation. It sounds like our congressional process where you've got to get you know 565 members of Congress or at least a majority of those on board in order to, to pass a piece of legislation that often you know is very vague and represents lots of different compromises. Is that, is that kind of a fair understanding of what EU sanctions involves? Yeah, I think that that's a fair understanding. But I think where the problem arises is that the way I understand it, but correct me if I'm wrong, in the US, what Congress does is they give sort of a broad outline, which is then um, um, specified by the president through executive orders and specified even further by OFAC. And in the EU, this is where it stops. So that's, exa uh, that's exactly yeah. right. That's exactly right. And that's kind of where I was going with my question. Yeah. So, so basically... Once you get the EU authorizing legislation, it goes to the individual countries like the Netherlands and, and all other 30 countries to just try and figure out what it what that means to them and how they're going to enforce it. Yeah, to, to a significant extent, that is right. Now, those rules are very detailed. Uh, and that's, I think, where the legislative instrument looks a lot more like what, for instance, probably the executive orders or, or even the rules promulgated by OFAC would look like. Right now with Russia, even though it's unprecedented, you're talking about hundreds of pages of documents. Um, so they are very detailed. However, they still leave a lot of room for interpretation. And that's basically what all of the sanctions lawyers in the EU have been doing for basically uh, the better part of this year. Um, uh, the, there is interpretive guidance issued by the EU Commission. Uh, and that is very important. That's also now spanning hundreds of pages for the Russia sanctions alone, um, which already tells you that there was a lot of vague territory to begin with. But with the guidance, do, do you need the whole EU on board to, to join the guidance as well? That's the, that's the interesting thing. So the European Commission takes a view on these rules and provides guidance. And, and um, you, can, you can ask some questions as to what the legal basis of that guidance actually is, because they are not the legislative body that actually sets these rules. That's the member states uh, acting jointly. And what we've also seen is in some of the more contentious issues, particularly when it came to um, the ne uh, necessity to open Gazprom bank accounts uh, for shipments of, of gas, um, the interpretive guidance given by the EU Commission was disputed by some member states, which also made clear that sort of within their jurisdiction, they would not follow that guidance because they disagreed with that. So that, I mean, that is incredibly interesting. So essentially you have the commission giving guidance, but then the member states have to decide whether or not they agree with that guidance and yeah. will follow it. I mean, so where is the Netherlands in all of this? So, so you've got Netherlands enforcers. Who's the sanctions enforcer in the Netherlands and kind of where are they in terms of the, the 
let's just talk generally about sanctions enforcement and then yeah. we'll talk about Russia sanctions. So um, generally, there's sort of three uh, regimes that are important here. On the one hand, uh, there's, there's simply the criminal enforcement agencies. So primarily that would be investigative agencies like the Dutch Customs uh, or the Dutch Fraud Investigative Agency and the Dutch Public Prosecution Service. Uh, for sort of straightforward sanctions violations, uh, in this case, for instance, someone dealing uh, with a person that is blocked under the Russia sanctions, they would primarily be the party that would go after that, that party. Um, Secondly, there is in the Netherlands a specific regulation of the financial sector. A variety of regulated businesses um, must obey a specific set of additional rules relating to international sanctions. For instance, in relation to their uh, administrative controls, they are required to have administrative controls in place that enable them to comply with sanctions. And if they don't do so, their financial regulator so that could be the authority for the financial markets or the Dutch central bank can actually give them a fine regardless of any individual sanctions violations that would be within the jurisdiction of those criminal enforcement agencies. And then finally, although it's not necessarily an enforcement agency, a very important part is played by uh, the authorities that provide licenses for specific uh, behavior. So the EU sanctions have a whole raft of possibilities to, to apply for a license for behavior that would otherwise be prohibited. Uh, and the authorities that are in charge of providing those licenses actually usually also play a very significant role in interpreting the sanctions in an individual case, because that's who you would approach in an individual matter where you say, look, this is what we want to do. Um, can you provide us with a license or can you tell us that we don't need a license because in your view, this is not prohibited activity. And that sounds a lot like what OFAC does yeah. in terms of licensing. Um, so, so take me back before February, 2022, how active were these agencies in enforcing sanctions, in providing guidance? What was the enforcement and guidance climate pre-February, 2022? Yeah. So, the, the enforcement climate was actually such that, generally speaking, most of the legal community for years uh, said um, there hasn't been a lot of sanctions enforcement, but wait and see. It's around the corner. Next year is <laughs> going to be different. Um, and we did see some increase in, in criminal enforcement cases. Uh, what we primarily saw in the last couple of years um, uh, were uh, transporters. So for instance, uh, the, the criminal enforcement agencies going after uh, things like airlines or, or freight forwarders um, in relation to shipments, sometimes that they uncovered themselves, right? Um, uh, in relation to customs. And what we very much saw was that there was a very significant push on um, AML enforcement in relation to financial institutions. And quite often, sanctions sort of piggybacked on those enforcement cases where if there was an enforcement case anyway, um, that could lead to, to sanctions violations. Same thing to a certain extent with corruption cases where if there was a massive investigation of a large internationally operating uh, corporation um, and they were investigating international corruption, they might uncover a sanctions violation along the way and take that on board. That's sort of where it was. Um, uh, as I said, we've always been saying that 
more stringent and more active enforcement has been around the corner. Um, with the caveat that I've been saying that before <laughs> without being right, I'm actually going to say this time that I do think that the political climate due to what, is, what has happened in Russia has changed significantly and that significantly more budget and investigative powers are being directed uh, uh, towards this. Um, uh, that being said, I think there was a press release a couple of weeks ago that said that currently there are 13 enforcement cases ongoing in the Netherlands in relation to the Russia sanctions, which is wow. not that much if you think about it. Uh, given the fact that this was a major economy, that there was major trading activity, uh, you, you could expect more cases uh, to be found and brought. And it could be that at this point, we're still looking at low hanging fruit. That's really interesting. So, I, and and I, you know, in terms of predicting things and being wrong on this podcast, I think I've predicted a <laughs> hundred times, a hundred times that the U.S. and the Iran were going to go back into the nuclear deal. I, I think I've finally given up on that and, and decided <laughs> to call it quits. But but I think we're very experienced on this podcast at predictions that don't quite come true. Well, some of our predictions do. Um. So so. That's a really helpful background, I think, to, to yeah. take us to February 2022, yeah. because because I think that's when your prediction finally started to come true, or at least from the outside, that's what it looks yeah. like. Because what we see from the outside is that it appears that the, not only is the enforcement climate a lot different, but I think it, at least from, from what I'm seeing from my clients, the compliance climate is a lot different. I mean, my yeah. clients seem to be taking overseas clients, so EU clients, seem to be taking the EU sanctions and the EU sanctions authorities and US sanctions for that matter uh, more seriously than they did a year ago or two years ago. Is that your experience? Yes. Yeah. And I think that is something that we've seen across the board. Uh, to a certain extent, what we've also seen is something that was called overcompliance. Uh, by um, which was a, a special um, envoy of the Dutch government in charge of actually seeing whether the sanctions were being uh, applied in the Netherlands in, in, in a correct way, um, because there were serious doubts raised both in parliament and by journalists as to whether enough was being done in the Netherlands or whether billions were being siphoned off uh, by, by oligarchs. Uh, his conclusion was that, especially in the financial sector, there appears to be a, a form of overcompliance, where on all of the different gray areas that exist, which is a lot, uh, in the absence of guidance, uh, most institutions erred on the side of caution. And I can echo that from my own experience, not simply for the financial sector, but basically for all major corporations that I've dealt with. They were all very fearful of falling foul because it's it's not simply a very serious criminal offense, but also from a public relations perspective, to be seen to be violating these sanctions is, is, is very dangerous uh, if, if you are a major European company. Um, what we're also seeing is that there's an interplay between those two. We're seeing that um, the financial sector and service providers, also, for instance, statutory auditors, because they are erring on the side of caution, they are also requiring their clients to err on the side of caution because they are saying, look, I'm not going to participate in this activity that I see you doing um, uh, and which might fall foul of sanctions. Unless, for instance, you can show us a clean opinion by uh, a reputable law firm uh, that this is allowed. And 
I think what that triggered was a uh, a raft of questions being put before those competent authorities, those licensing authorities that I mentioned before, um, which I think were were basically overwhelmed with questions. Yeah, how are they doing with questions? I mean, what's the speed like? Like, are you getting answers at all? And if you do get answers, generally, how quickly do those answers come? Um, well, uh, uh, this differs from period to period. Um, I still have one or two questions outstanding that I still haven't received an answer on uh, for, <laughs> for, for the better part of a couple of months. Um, uh, what we're seeing is, is that a lot of questions are being forwarded also to the EU Commission. Um, so that you can see that sometimes questions or at least questions that are very similar to the questions that I raised come up in that hundred pages, hundreds of pages long document published by the EU Commission. Um, so you see that local authorities are forwarding those questions and are to a very significant extent also waiting on the EU Commission uh, in order to, to follow their line. Um, my sense sort of informally talking to them is, is that, yeah, it's, it is insane in, in terms of the number of questions that they're being asked. Uh, also because many small businesses don't have the luxury of actually engaging outside counsel and will ask questions themselves directly. Um, so for that reason, this, they, they are answering a lot of emails. <laughs> and, and what are their, what is the relationship between the Dutch regulator and the EU commission? So is this a relationship where essentially the Dutch regulator is deferring to the EU commission? Is this one where they have a, you know, dis regular disagreements? Is it, is it, is a collegial relationship or kind of an adverse relationship? Uh, uh. I, I don't know what ha what's happening behind the scenes, at least uh, <laughs> to the extent that I do, I won't comment on it. Um, uh, I think that generally speaking, at least from, from the Dutch perspective, uh, the relationship is quite good. I think that that's also because on most of the really contentious issues, um, I think the, the, the Netherlands is, is sort of siding with the EU commission or sometimes even being more stringent in their interpretation, because apart from, to make this even more complicated, to, apart from that EU commission guidance, there's also local guidance documents being published by the um, uh, ministries of the Dutch government, which sometimes go into issues that are not touched upon by the EU guidance. Uh, and in some respects are, are sort of taking a quite hard line approach and broad interpretation approach in relation to, to how these sanctions should be applied. So I think generally speaking, the Netherlands is, is seen as a quite a compliant country by the EU commission. Yeah, it sounds like almost over-compliance, which is a problem in the States as well. Yeah. I mean, and, and one that I'm seeing a lot where, you know, we have the, you know, the, with respect to the corporate registry, um, the, the prohibition in the US, and, and I think you have a corresponding one in the Netherlands and the EU, the prohibition on providing corporate registry services to Russia. We have a corporate registry here, the Delaware corporate registry, which is our biggest one, I think, in the US. And, and that registry, my understanding, and this has been my experience too, but there's been media reports about this. They ba basically went through their corporate documents after that prohibition came out. And if they saw the name Russia, they, they shut down the, the, the corporate registry and sent notices out to every company that had anything mentioning Russia in their, their documents that they were going to be shut down by the Delaware corporate registry. Now the prohibition didn't 
necessarily require that because it's only on providing going forward corporate registry services to Russia and not to Russians. Um, at least that's the prohibition in the U.S., but but they were taking a very broad view, the Delaware corporate registry of that, which, you know, seemed overcompliant. Now, it, it certainly, you know, it was a rough way of going about compliance because I'm sure that it's some portion of those involved providing corporate services to Russia, but they were going much broader than that. It sounds like that's the same sort of thing that's happening in the EU and the Netherlands. Yeah, that's right. And I think that, that touches upon sort of the, the sort of practical aspect of what is happening. Um, apart from this, this sanctions package, you also have the practical um, uh, consequences of, of uh, basically all major European corporations, or virtually all of them, uh, pulling out of Russia and the sanctions making it very difficult for Russian companies uh, to have an operating subsidiary uh, in the EU, and therefore a very significant sort of decoupling taking place, which also means that a lot of service providers, including uh, lawyers, um, don't want to work for Russian clients anymore. And we'll, we'll touch upon the um, uh, new prohibition on legal services, I think, in a, in, in a minute. But even before that was imposed, it got to the point where um, the dean of uh, the, the, the Bar Association in The Hague was actually received uh, an application by the Russian state saying, we have tried but have, have been unable to identify any lawyer in the Netherlands that's willing to represent us in litigation. Um, uh, so, so in a very, yeah. That's amazing. I mean, yeah. that really is. I mean, I, and, and look, I, I understand the emotions from the, the conflict and I, I, I get where some people are coming from, but in a, you know, in a democratic society governed by the rule of law, the idea that only one side can get lawyers is yeah. very problematic. I mean, at least in my view. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, uh, you, you, um, we, we pride ourselves on being a rule-based society indeed. And that rule-based society has certain systems, controls, and, and, and governance in place, which also involves legal representation. Um, so so this, is, this is really a conundrum. And I think we'll talk in a minute about the, the, the prohibition on legal advice, but that's, that's something that's in, also indeed, in my view, quite problematic and can have unintended consequences uh, that, that actually also hurt ultimately the legitimate interests not simply of, of, of those involved, but of, of everyone in the EU. Well, let's go deeper into that in a second. But before we do, I, you know, I, I did want to talk about one of the other new EU, um, I guess it's a, a EU uh, uh, regulations or EU uh, legislation that came out in the last few weeks. Um, and, and that's the new facilitation provision. And the reason that that interested me is, one, facilitation is a concept very uh, familiar to U.S. sanctions lawyers. But two, one of the big differences traditionally, at least in my understanding, between the EU sanctions provisions and the U.S. sanctions provisions is that the U.S. takes a very broad view of extraterritoriality. The U U.S. I think stretches, everyone would agree, stretches to the limits and maybe sometimes beyond the limits of what international law allows countries to do with respect to enforcing its laws outside of its physical territory. The EU has taken 
traditionally a much less aggressive position and in fact really restricted its sanctions provisions to its own territory. But these new facilitation provisions kind of seem to move more in the U.S. direction of extraterritoriality. So why don't you talk a little bit about kind of what they do and and then we'll talk maybe about some of the consequences of that. Yeah, and it's I think sort of in terms of word for word, it's one of the most interesting developments because it's basically one sentence uh, <laughs> that's been added to a regulation. Where indeed, I think it's 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 uh, it could be construed to imply a very significant policy change uh, for for the EU. Now, traditionally, um, actually, the, the the legal framework already allowed, I think, for an interpretation that that could come close to the sort of facilitation-like interpretation that you have in the U- US. Um, most EU sanctions regulations have a clause that states that um, uh, those regulations apply to any legal person, entity, or body in respect of any business done in whole or in part within the European Union. Now, in order to prosecute that, you also need to have local jurisdiction rules that actually allow that. If we look at Dutch law, for instance, that also has a, a similar interpretation where it says Dutch criminal law applies within the territory of the Netherlands, but there's been some, some Supreme Court litigation which, which demonstrates that that also can apply, for instance, to money sitting into an, in an account in the Netherlands, if that is sort of part of a larger whole. Now, there's all kinds of nuances to that. I, I won't go into those, but to a significant extent, actually saying, well, you know what, this transaction, um, even though the major players in that transaction reside outside of the Netherlands or even outside of the EU, is can be prosecuted here because a significant part of the flows of money actually fro- flowed through the Netherlands. Um, I don't think that that is fully beyond the uh, case law that was in place before. That being said, in terms of enforcement on a practical level, that was never that actively enforced. Um, And I think that that also echoed what you mentioned, is that the EU always took this view that you need to be very careful in trying to extend your jurisdiction too much beyond your own borders. Uh, And if, if ultimately what you're trying to do is going after people that have very little to do with the EU, um, that you can ask the question whether or not that is still compatible with international law. And in 1996, which was um, expanded upon in 2018 after the JCPOA was um, uh, basically ripped up by by President Donald Trump, um, the EU came came out with a mechanism that actually intends to to block extraterritorial application of certain U.S. sanctions, specifically the secondary sanctions in relation to to Cuba and Iran. Now, what this rule does, this new rule, is it states that uh, the the listing requirements for for EU sanctions have now been expanded to include uh, anyone facilitating infringements of the prohibition against circumvention of these sanctions. So if you facilitate circumvention of sanctions, um, you can be listed yourself uh, and, and be part of the EU's freezing regime, which would mean that basically all of your assets need to be frozen and nobody can sort of do business with you. That's that's sort of what it boils down to. And what we'll need to see is how they use that. What was the policy goal here? Is the policy goal to go after 
um, EU companies or primarily EU companies uh, or individuals that play a role in, in facilitating uh, violations and do what do they want to be able to actually very quickly um, uh, shut them out of the financial system and shut them out of the good system because they think that prosecution would take too long because they are already within the jurisdiction of the EU or is the intention to actually use that mechanism to go after non-EU companies, non-EU persons um, that play a role in, in facilitation of circumvention. I don't know, uh, someone in Central Asia, a company or a person in Central Asia, sort of rerouting goods on a, on, on a, on a, a large scale. Well, in the, the, the hypothetical that, you know, I think we're thinking about here in the States and one that I, at least my understanding is it played a role in prompting the facilitation provision is these price caps that are coming yeah. and that they're going to apply to the transporters and the, mar the maritime transporters of Russian oil, which are yeah. by definition not going to be in the other Netherlands are going to be in the EU. And so if you have manipulation of the price caps or creation of false documents, how do you go after that if it's all happening outside the EU yeah. and they're essentially violating EU price caps? So it's going to be interesting to see. I mean, it, it sounds like you will need a facilitation provision. It, presumably, you'd need someone in the Netherlands who's working with these companies overseas to create these false documents. But it's almost always going to involve actions that are outside the physical territory of the country. Yeah, and I, I agree with you that it, there appears to be a, a significant link between between those two, and ultimately, what what it does say, and and I think that that is something that's probably different with uh, a significant difference with with the U.S.'s secondary sanctions, because it says the prohibition against circumvention of the provisions of this regulation. It does, I think, to a certain extent, still require jurisdiction. Uh, in relation to that circumvention. So there needs to be some kind of territorial link um, uh, to the EU. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and that probably will be also the way that the EU will defend this, uh, uh, this, this policy change. Um, although the proof of the pudding will be in the eating on how they actually do that and how they apply it. Right. And that, and that, that concept, that facilitation concept is very similar to the U.S. concept. So, so U.S. facilitation is is a version of primary sanctions because it does require some U.S. nexus. Unlike unlike the secondary sanctions that were you know at issue with the JCPOA, facilitation involved you you have to have U.S. person involvement. It's some link. It's some point in the transaction in order to to have a facilitation. Um, issue. But once you get that one U.S. person involved, at, at least under the way that the U.S. authorities apply it, every single person that's in that chain or in the group involved with that transaction is then pot potentially subject to the U to U.S. jurisdiction. That's how, what OFAC would say. I'm not saying that's necessarily right as a matter of U.S. law. It certainly yeah. might be subject to challenge, and we'll talk about challenges in a second. But that's the U.S. view of facilitation. But you still need a U.S. link in the chain, and it sounds like that's what yeah. the what what the 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 Dutch and the EU authorities think as well. Yeah, I think that that is the right way to to interpret this. A lot will become clear probably when the first people uh, or companies become designated here, because right. the way that it works in, in, in the EU is that you have this short, usually quite short, one, one or two paragraphs uh, explanation as to why someone has been designated. 
um, and probably we'll we'll start to see some explanations, uh, which will cast some some light on how wide they want to cast the net in going after these these facilitators. And at that point, somebody who's been designated presumably would have the ability to bring a challenge. If it's a Dutch designation, how would the challenge process work? So this would this would be an EU uh, uh, designation. So okay. that would be on on uh, the EU Commission level. Um, uh, they would be delegated to actually do that that designation. If they want to bring um, a challenge to that, they can do so at the European Court of Justice. And that has actually been done in the past. It has been done by, by individuals, but also, for instance, by, by an Iranian bank uh, who, who challenged the reasoning given. And one thing that has become clear, I think, from, from these legal challenges, and I, I'd be interesting to see how you view that from, from the US perspective, um, is that quite often the European Court of Justice has criticized um, the European institutions for actually not doing enough diligence uh, on on determining these designations, um, and I can imagine that that's going to be specifically relevant for this uh, legal basis because it it sort of expands the jurisdiction of the EU so significantly. Uh, I think you need to build your case well. Yeah, I, I think so. In the US. We have a ch the way that you would challenge a designation is first you have to go to OFAC, which can take months and sometimes even years to get OFAC to decide whether or not they will grant your delisting petition. You go ask them to take you off, either because they got it wrong or because the circumstances have changed. And then if you once you're, you've exhausted your remedies with OFAC, you can go to court. That's not always the case, um, but that's the the normal process. When you get to court, the courts have been traditionally quite deferential to. OFAC, although in the last year or two, there were some challenges to some of these designations under the Chinese military sanctions. Now, these were designations that OFAC didn't do. They were done originally, President Trump delegated that authority to the Department of Defense. And the designations were so bad that despite the fact that courts generally uh, defer, those designations got overturned and the government didn't challenge that on appeal. And so, you know, there were some companies that were taken off the list that were originally put on there because the designations were clearly afterthoughts or one page long and really didn't say anything. OFAC has gotten, in my view, relatively good at the designation process. Um, it's it's a very slow it's very slow to challenge. And part of the problem too is that the categories are so big. So like, for example, you can be designated for operating in the Russian um, transportation sector or the Russian technology sector. And that's, it, it, that, it, that's such a broad category that all they have to show is that you're actually operating in the, the designated sector. And so it, it's not that hard a lift. It's not, it's not a precise criteria that you have to show that that a company did something wrong. You just have to show A, they're in Russia and B, they're in this sector. And that's enough. And courts have deferred to that in the US. And so the challenge process in the US, at least in my view, is is really a long shot. Now, there are cases where I would say differently about it. So every case is different on its facts. But my impression, and it sounds like um, you know, this is your impression too, the EU process is a much more vibrant process where the courts are much more skeptical of the designated authorities than the US courts are of OFAC. I think that that's generally right. Um, that is at least my impression. That being said, um, uh, it can take a long time to actually sort of work through that process. 
And there are also all kinds of ways for the European Commission to actually ensure that even if the court says uh, that your designation needs to be scrapped, they can sort of try to put in place a new designation in the interim while they sort of work on a better uh, um, informational foundation for that designation. So it's more of a, you didn't do it right, but here's how to do it right and go back and do it again. Yeah, it, can, it can be a sort of a pyrrhic victory, although in right. some cases, um, if, if you're talking about low level players or if the circumstances have changed, uh, it can actually sort of be too much of a bother for the institutions to actually redesignate you. Right. And that's similar to here. I mean, I've had had designations where we have challenged them in one in front of OFAC. And and usually it involves, you know, either these were minor players or that uh that circumstances have changed or both. And those those tend to stick. But but in the more high level designations, they're very hard to challenge and the courts don't really seem interested because they defer to these very broad categories that it's kind of the category is so broad it's kind of hard to miss when you're you're aiming <laughs> at it. <laughs> um so why don't we talk a little bit I, I why don't we talk a little bit about the legal services provision? I know that we've talked yeah. about it a, a little bit, but it's it, I, and this all took place within the last two weeks, it sounds like in, in the yeah. most recent package of sanctions from the EU. That one of the one of the the prohibitions, as I understand it, was a prohibition on providing certain legal services to to Russia. And so, it, why don't you de describe what happened, and and we'll talk a little about uh, some of, some of the consequences of that. Yeah, and this this that that's that's a good point, and it, it's also something that has sort of dominated a lot of discussions here in the last two weeks. Um, this actually builds on a pro prohibition that was already in place two weeks ago. And that prohibition already covered um, all kinds of other services being provided to Russia or to Russian companies. And most importantly, that already included a prohibition in relation to audit services and accounting services. Now, that led to a lot of questions and a lot of interpretive guidance being requested um, because you have many EU companies with a, a Russian link and you also have sort of uh, Russian uh, companies being active in the EU, uh, in some cases also through sort of an EU business that rely on auditing services and accounting services to actually do their business here, where um, uh, they have uh, EU employees, uh, basically, for instance, working in shops or factories, etc. And the real question was, how do, how do we interpret that? And um, this is to a certain extent still an open question. I think there's, there's been guidance that says that those services uh, being provided to an EU incorporated entity uh, do not fall foul of the prohibition if that EU entity has a Russian parent company, provided that uh, you're not actually providing those services to the Russian company. Now, uh, one of the ways in which I can imagine that's the case is if the auditing services are being provided in the context of a consolidated audit for the Russian parent. And so what we'll probably start to see, I think, is that uh, the consolidated audits of, of Russian companies owning EU businesses could become problematic. And uh, uh, it, it may depend on further guidance on how to deal with those. Um, uh, but it could also be that that's going to be something that, for instance, those EU businesses, and I, I simply don't know how many there's going to be, 
how many there are left. But those EU businesses will probably also need to renegotiate, for instance, with their uh, financing parties, because I can assume, I can, I can, I can imagine that for many of them, uh, having a, a statutory audit on the parent company's consolidated accounts is one of the covenants, for instance, for uh, uh, retained uh, financing. Now, that prohibition was extended two weeks ago to also cover legal services. Now, very importantly, what that does not cover is litigation services, basically. Anything sort of the, 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 the real lawyerly services defending right. someone in court or acting on behalf of someone in court or acting on behalf of someone uh, in administrative procedures, um, all of that is carved out. But and that's that's else, very and that's very similar to so you know many of the OFAC prohibitions involve you know prohibit generally providing any services including legal services to a designated party but almost always OFAC then uh, puts out a general license that allow that generally authorizes providing exactly the type of legal services that you were talking about Naya so so. Um, representing someone in court, representing them in administrative challenges to their own designation, for example. Yeah. Sounds like the EU did that. Did they do it by a general license? Like, how did they actually do it? Did they say everything's prohibited, prohibited but this is authorized? Or did they just say, this isn't prohibited at all? The, it's it's in the same sort of article. Uh, it, okay. it says, uh, this is prohibited, and then sort of one clause down, except to the extent that. Right. Um, so there's no prohibition even on those services at all in, no, in the U.S. No, yeah. No, go ahead. I didn't, uh, I didn't mean that. But I think importantly, this is not relating to designated parties. This is this is every Russian company. Yeah. And so regardless of designations, every Russian company now uh, cannot get legal advice uh, in the EU uh, except in relation to litigation. Um, Interesting. And one of the real ways in which we're already seeing the effects of that is I mentioned before that decoupling uh, between sort of Russia and the West, or at least Russia and the EU in a very significant way. And there have been major divestments by both by Russian companies in terms of their EU assets and by EU companies in terms of their Russian assets. Now, a lot of those have, have already been completed, but some of them took longer for a variety of reasons. And those divestments have now become very complicated because uh, the Russian counterparty to those transactions, whether it's the current owner or the, or the future owner of those assets, um, uh, will want to obtain EU legal advice if they are entering into a transaction that has an EU law angle. And that has now become very difficult. Uh, not to say impossible. Um, so what we're seeing is a push by those Russian companies to say, look, I am only proceeding with this transaction if I can get legal advice. I'm now being told that I can't get legal advice anymore. So I want this transaction to actually be moved to a jurisdiction where I can get legal advice. Um, so we're seeing sort of the, the, the more neutral jurisdictions like Singapore now being suggested to actually structure those divestments through. Um, right. I mean, that, that's, that's been a problem here in the States as well in terms of, you know, we have these prohibitions on new investment. We have these prohibitions on dealing with, you know, there's a number of sanctioned parties in the Russian economy at this point who had investments 
that involve either U.S. persons or sometimes EU persons. And how do you, once those designations are made, or once these prohibitions are put into place, it makes divestment extremely difficult. Um, yeah. You know, I, my understanding is you can get licenses, but licenses are slow. There's some guidance from OFAC that allows that, but it is not as clear as you would hope. And so divestment can be a really tricky process, even though it seems to be the preferred policy, at least in the US, and my understanding is the EU as well. It sounds like you're experiencing significant divestment issues. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was already really complicated to do those divestments before this prohibition uh, uh, was put into place. Now, as an EU company, if you want to if you want to think about what this is doing, um, uh, and if you if you want to think about, do I want to proceed with actually moving that transaction out of the EU? That is not a straightforward question. On the one hand, you would think, okay, you know what? Um, I I get that my counterparty actually wants to obtain legal advice. That is not necessarily uh, unreasonable. That being said, by moving your transaction out of the EU you're also giving up sort of protection uh, that courts uh, and dispute resolution sort of mechanisms, whether they're arbitration or, or state courts, um, will actually allow you to comply with sanctions. So you're putting yourself in a more risky position by actually saying, okay, I am okay with actually moving this transaction outside of the EU, because then to what extent can you still rely on EU sanctions by, for instance, at a very late stage in the transaction, refusing to participate because it would require you to breach sanctions. Yeah, it's a it's a real dilemma. Uh, um, so is this one of the unintended consequences that you were talking about before of the of this prohibition? And yeah, I think so. If, yeah, I mean, what are some of the others? Well, what we're seeing is a lot of the a lot of the advice that we've been giving companies in in basically the, the past nine months is about how to comply. And, and that includes, for instance, uh, uh, European businesses that, that do have uh, Russian, uh, a Russian element in the ownership structure. Now, to the extent that you curtail that legal advice, they're actually making it more difficult to comply. And so that part of, of legal advice um, was actually aiding compliance in the EU, I think. Now, I'm not saying that there weren't EU lawyers uh, that were actually facilitating, for instance, the kind of behavior uh, that the EU doesn't want to take place. Um, but by taking this measure, um, uh, you're, you're taking a very blunt instrument. Uh, um, and and I, I'm pretty sure that this is going to have some very unintended consequences down the road. Um, because you're you're depriving people of something that I think, as you rightly pointed out, is 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 quite often seen seen as a, as as almost a a, a basic human right is is the the ability to seek legal advice on what you can and cannot do. Yeah, I mean, it it does seem that in a in a country and in a society that values the rule of law you would want to encourage legal advice more often yeah. than not. Now, one question that, that I had was in does this in the US, usually when there is a, you know, an exception, a general license, 
it not only covers litigation, it covers compliance advice and counsel. Does the EU exception cover compliance advice or is, is compliance advice outside of the outside no. of the exception? No, and that that is very interesting because that would really already help, right? Right. Um, and and no, it doesn't. Uh, uh, so uh, it, it doesn't apply. I'll, I'll read it out. Um, wow. uh, it doesn't apply to the provision of services which are strictly necessary to ensure access to judicial, administrative, or arbitral proceedings in a member state or for the recognition or enforcement of a judgment or arbitral award rendered in a member state, provided that such provision of services is consistent with the objectives of this regulation and, and other EU sanctions. So it's very much... Uh, uh, confined to that kind of wow litigation-like services, and indeed, it would have been really helpful if you could at least say, "Look, I I just sent. I simply want to know how to comply with these rules." Um, that would already, I think, indeed, have helped. Well, that's really interesting because that that is much narrower than the the normal general license here, where where not only is litigation covered, but uh, yeah. you you always have a you always have advice and counsel for the about U.S. law for the purpose of compliance with U.S. law. So you you, you know you can't give people advice that allows them to evade U.S. law, but you can give legal advice that allows for compliance. Now, um, one other question that I had was. Does that the way that you read that? It sounded to me like it might not in, even include a challenge to a, a listing, because it, it, that last part about for the only representation that's consistent with the purposes of the sanctions law. I mean, is a delisting petition consistent with the purposes of the of the sanctions laws? Well, weirdly enough, there's a separate but very related exception that says the exercise of right of defense in judicial proceedings and the right to an effective legal remedy. And I would say that the effective legal remedy part, uh, and that is not uh, uh, limited to anything that sort of is in line with sanctions. So I would say that probably with the effective legal remedy point, uh, you're, you're okay there. I okay. certainly don't think that this was intended and I, I, I wouldn't construe it to, to be intended to, to, um, prohibit a challenge to a listing uh, uh that that i would not say okay good i, I mean and and, there, and, and again, there are other exceptions right so for ur urgent uh, uh uh urgent health emergencies with a significant impact on human health etc all of that stuff is is uh excluded but simply a company that simply simply wants to get advice on how to comply with sanctions um, uh, in the EU, you you would think that you would include something along those lines. Yeah, I totally that, agree with you. that doesn't that doesn't make a lot of sense because you know I, I think that that in the in the aggregate, my experience has been that if you want companies to comply, you want them to talk to lawyers who will tell them how to yeah. comply. And company and and in fact, you know, in in the absence of such legal advice, you're going to get a lot less compliance. Yeah. At least that's been my experience. Yeah. And and the sort of weird catch twenty two type situation is that you can also apply for a specific license um, uh, from those uh, authorities that I mentioned before. So in the Netherlands, those would be ministries uh, of the Dutch government. Um, so you can apply for a license um, uh, where where such legal services are allowed under a number of of uh, conditions. The problem, of course, is 
you would generally need a lawyer to actually assist you in drafting such well, a license. And, and, and um, I, I think you'll be hard pressed to find a, a Dutch lawyer that's actually willing to, to, to help you with that. You could say that it's under the, the, the effective legal remedy point, but it's- yeah, I mean, that's that. So that is an issue here with OFAC as well. So, so, you know, often there are these general licenses, but there's either some, there's some programs where there aren't. And so you need a specific license to represent someone, or there are some representations that aren't covered by a general license. So you need to go in and ask for a specific license. And so asking for a specific license to provide legal services in a way that is not providing legal services is a really hard line to walk, at least in my experience, because on the one hand, um, clearly, you know, OFAC grants them. So they, they're not, they don't disapprove of them and they are, you know, you know, so, so they, they do allow it to some extent, but it's a really, the, the, the tricky part of it is that you you don't want to provide too many legal services in the process of providing the one legal service that you seem to be allowed to do without a license, which is asking OFAC for permission to do the representation. But to do that well often requires you to develop facts with your client so that you can justify why it is that the client needs legal representation. And so I've actually been involved in matters where there've been a license request where the facts that were presented to OFAC turned out to be wrong. Um, and, and because the lawyer who was doing, who was doing the license request didn't want to ask too many questions about the facts and actually got the facts wrong when they presented them to OFAC, which created problems of its own, but it's kind of brought on by OFAC's crazy rules about the fact that you're not allowed to provide legal services, but to, in order to, to provide them, you need to ask for a license. And in order to ask for a license, you have to provide legal services, at least to some extent. Yeah, yeah, and I agree. I, 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 I'm not sure that ultimately this is indeed good policy. That being said, um, we don't have, we won't have a counterfactual to actually test that. <laughs> well, I guess we'll have. We, maybe we can talk in six months and see how it's working, and, yeah. and at least be able to test it that way. So I think at this point of the the podcast we're going to move to the last segment the lightning round pause for that and and why don't we get the lightning round started it's really going to focus entirely on cryptocurrency and part of the reason i wanted to focus on cryptocurrency is because there have been some announcements on on this side of the atlantic from ofac and from uh the the money laundering regulatory agency fincen about the fears that cryptocurrency was going to be used as a way to evade sanctions in Russia. Can you talk a little bit about the the use of cryptocurrency and and its its role in evading sanctions in Russia, or at least what EU authorities have said about that, if anything? Yeah. Um, so it's it is on the agenda, uh, at least at the European level, and in that same round of of um, new sanctions, so the eighth sanctions package that uh, was released two weeks ago. Uh, they also tighten sanctions in relation to to crypto. And so it now has, previously there were sort of threshold amounts. Now it simply has a full ban on on, uh, crypto asset wallet account or custody services to all Russian nationals or persons in Russia, uh, including sort of Russian companies, et cetera. Uh, So it's it's an all out ban. 
that 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 they've now imposed since since that was the sixth of October. Uh, so it's on their radar. Uh, what I can say from my own experience in in enforcement cases is I haven't seen the attention to crypto in the way that I that is my my perception at least uh, on the U.S. side of things. I've seen. Uh, crypto-related enforcement cases, but they were usually sort of derivative cases in in larger money laundering schemes, uh, where they would also go after uh, uh, potentially go after a crypto exchange or other kind of crypto service provider, rather than seeing it as a target in and of itself. And that and that was that was the the context in which I started thinking about this because on October 11th, so just last week, a little bit after the EU came out with its uh, new package of sanctions against Russia, the US and OFAC in particular, but also FinCEN came out with an enforcement action against a company called Bittrex, which is a US company in Washington that uh, provides virtual currency exchange services. And so this is actually pretty com- uh, pretty common OFAC enforcement action. They've, in about the last year or two, they've gone after a number of these exchanges, which makes some sense because that's where uh, you know, uh, fiat money is uh, changed or you know, common currency is changed into virtual currency. And so that is where I think the regulators have the most fear that there's going to be some sort of money laundering or uh, sanctions evasion going on. So Bittrex is a company in Washington that started in 2014. So it's a, a relatively new company. For the first couple of years, it apparently had no uh, compliance program uh, at all, which is, you know, in the financial services industry, as as you and I both know, having represented financial uh, service providers, that is a, a big no-no. It has gotten many companies in trouble with OFAC and with uh, with the Dutch regulators as well over the, the course of the last 10 years. And so uh, Bittrex got a subpoena in 2017, the subpoena from OFAC uh, revealed that Bittrex was not providing uh, sanctions compliance services in the way that OFAC would expect. Now, the good news for Bittrex, and and I think, you know, the lessons learned from OFAC started with when you're a startup, you need to pay attention to sanctions compliance, which is a good lesson to learn, and especially if you're in the financial services industry. But Bittrex actually had a very quick response. Um, You know, they had, they they actually, they had 116,000 sanctions violations before they started incorporating these these uh, compliance procedures but they they immediately went to geo uh, geo geolocation screening they started using the information provided by their customers uh, to to start screening you know location but also for SDN screening um, they started training they started compliance they got a good screening program in place and so really quickly they they remediated which one of the lessons learned from OVAC is when you find a problem and you're, you're you you discover it you have to do kind of a swift and and really holistic remediation and that was was very good I guess the other thing that they didn't talk about here although they did they did list the violations by jurisdiction. And of the 116,000 violations, only a hand, they, they, they were in all sorts of sanctioned jurisdictions, but only a handful were in most of them. But the two jurisdictions that jumped out at me with you know, tens of thousands of violations in each of them were Russia 
and Iran, which tells you kind of where the cryptocurrency action is. I mean, has that been your experience as well, is that those are the jurisdictions that you're looking at when you're looking at cryptocurrency and potential sanctions evasion? So I think uh, um, what's important to, 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 uh, to mention here is that the financial services sector uh, in in the Netherlands has been under tremendous scrutiny um, from an AML perspective, but also in a more derivative way from a, from a sanctions perspective, um, both by uh, financial regulators, but also by the Dutch Public Prosecution Service for the last basically five to seven years. That has been so intense that what we've seen is what well, we talked before about overcompliance. Um, I've also seen to a certain extent that they are very um, cautious in engaging with crypto services, probably more than uh, uh, the financial services sectors in other EU countries, um, simply because they recognize that those crypto services will invariably lead to larger AML risks. And it was very hard for them to actually explain uh, uh, why they thought that those risks would be acceptable given how stringently all of the rules were being uh, applied. So I think that there's an element of the Dutch financial services sector um, uh, already trying to carve out a lot of crypto services uh, in past years. That is one. Uh, other than that, yes, uh, I have seen uh, uh, instances, not in my own cases, but sort of through... Um, uh, through uh, uh, press releases being sent out where, or informal communications actually uh, by regulators uh, saying, look, pay attention to this because this is how um, uh, evasion is happening. This is how transactions are being structured. And I do see that a lot of my client's activity actually goes into trying to understand how those networks work trying to train um, their internal personnel. Uh, so the, their alert handlers um, and their investigators in trying to understand how these networks work. Um, and what they're also doing is trying to increase cooperation with investigative agencies um, in order to see how they can sort of team up uh, to uncover these networks in an early stage. And um, I hope, although obviously we don't know, I hope that that's actually a reason why the Netherlands is being targeted less uh, for these kinds of transactions than other countries. But we'll have to wait and see. Yeah, um, I, I think that is good advice to wait and see on this because I'm guessing this is, yeah. you know, Bittrex is not OFAC's last word on crypto. I'm guessing that you'll probably hear more from the regulators in the Netherlands on, yeah. on cryptocurrency. So it sounds like they're really on top of it. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it is high on the agenda and they are very clear to um, uh, the large financial service providers that, that they should be very vigilant uh, when it comes to crypto. Um, well, I'm going to leave it there. So, Nea, uh, thank you for coming on Embargoed. Uh, it was a pleasure to have you here. It was, it was my pleasure, Tim. Thank you for inviting me. Well, and thank you. You and we'll we'll be back again next time to to talk about some China issues. But until then, everyone, stay sanctions free. Produced by Heartcast Media.